Twas the night time before prime time. And all through the world, every creature was stirring, except for the church. Donned in their kerchiefs and robed in their gowns, the church was asleep as the curtain came down. With all due apology to uh, Clement Clark Moore or Henry Livingston, scholars aren't sure which one of them composed that beloved poem, "'Twas the Night Before Christmas." Without, with, with all due apology to either one of them. I tell you what, it makes you wonder, doesn't it? On this nighttime before prime time, is the church snoring through the final curtain call? Let's pray together. Are we, Father, asleep in this nighttime? In today's teaching, as we wrap up our journey, oh God, through the words of Christ, speak to the hearts of this campus and this community and all those who worship with us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How would you like to get your doctorate in psychology and get it by researching one of your favorite childhood games? 1990, Elizabeth Newton earned her Ph.D. in psychology from Stanford University, and she did it by studying a game my brother and I, my brother Greg and I used to play all the time, and I'll bet you you played it. You may even still play it. Late at night when you can't sleep and your kid brother's in the trundle bed right beside you. Hey, Greg, guess this one. And you tap out the tune. You ever play that? I don't know if they have a name for this. Guess that tune, probably. You tap the tune out. You say, all right, what was it? In fact, let me do it for you right here. You guess the tune. I'll give you a clue later. All right? All right? Oh, I love that one. Don't you just love that one? That is one of my favorites. That is one of my favorites. What is it? Huh? Nope, nope, you missed it. You missed it. I'm going to give you one more clue. I'll do it one more time before this is over. But anyway, look. So Elizabeth Newton, that's what she does. For her doctoral research, she divides her study group into two categories. There are the tappers and there are the listeners. All right? Turns out that listening isn't so easy as you thought or as you just proved. 120 songs, familiar songs, were tapped out to the listeners and they guessed only 2.5% of those songs, 3 out of 120. And it was right here that Elizabeth Newton's research suddenly earned her doctoral degree in psychology. I want to quote from a book that my friend Ollie Archer who is our youth pastor here. He gave it to me for having a part in his wedding this summer. This is Chip and Dan Heath's book, Made to Stick, Why Some Ideas Survive and Others Die. And this is fascinating. Hold on. 
Before the tappers tapped out the songs, Newton came to them and said, all right, I want you to kind of guess the percentage of songs that will be uh, figured out by the listeners. And they, to a man and woman, said, oh, about 50-50, one out of two. And yet the numbers you just heard indicate that, in fact, the ratio was only 2.5% or one out of 40. Why? Ah, because when a tapper taps, she is hearing the song in her head. And can't for the life of her figure out why you can't get it. I'll do it again. This time I'll tell you it's a Christmas carol. Come on. Oh, little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. What'd you think it was? She was coming around the mountain? Brother. So easy. Now, now, this is Newton's point. Here we go. I'll put it on the screen for you. It's hard to be a tapper. The problem is that tappers have been given knowledge, the song title, that makes it impossible for them to imagine what it's like to lack that knowledge. When they're tapping, they can't imagine what it's like for the listeners to hear isolated taps rather than the song. I like this. This is the curse of knowledge. Once we know something, we find it hard to imagine what it was like not to know it. Our knowledge has cursed as the Heath brothers put it, has cursed us. And it becomes difficult for us to share our knowledge with others because we can't readily recreate our listener's state of mind. End quote. Could that be our problem too? We hear the tune of divine truth in our minds and we figure everybody else surely can hear this tune as well when it turns out that most, in fact, cannot hear it. We're the only ones who can. If we're even listening. It was a night time before prime time. And all through the world, every creature was stirring except for the church. Donned in their kerchiefs and wrapped in their gowns. The church was asleep as the curtain came down. It reminds me of an old story. So familiar. We need read it only once. Open your Bible with me, please, to the Gospel of St. Matthew. Matthew chapter 25, as we put a wrap on this journey you and I have been on for a few weeks now. Matthew chapter 25, I'll be in, be in the, today's New International Version. If you didn't bring a Bible, you've got to see this. We're only going to read it once. You've got to see it in that pew Bible in front of you, so grab the uh, pew Bible. It will be page 668, the New King James Version. Read along. Matthew chapter 25. Oh, come on. Everybody knows this story that's read the Gospels. Matthew chapter 25, verse 1. Jesus speaking on the eve of His death. All right? Matthew 25, verse 1. At that time, Jesus said, The kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish one Ones took their lamps, but did not take any oil with them. Verse 4, the wise, however, took oil in their jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming, and they all became drowsy and fell asleep. Verse 6, at midnight, the cry rang out, here's the bridegroom, come out to meet him. 
Then all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish one said to the wise, Give us some of your oil. Our lamps are going out. No, they replied. There may not be enough for both of us and you. Instead, go to those who sell the oil. You buy some for yourselves. Verse 10. But while they were on their way to buy the oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later, the others came also. Sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, truly, I tell you, I don't know you. Therefore, Jesus concludes, because you do not know the day or hour, you must watch. 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 Because you do not know the day or hour. There are two lines in that very familiar story that I am praying will arrest our attention this morning. And I wish you'd jot them both down right now. Take that study guide, please, out of your worship bulletin. Grab that study guide. The final study guide. You want to make sure you get this. If you didn't get it and you're, you're within reach of our very friendly ushers, put your hand up. They'll make sure that you get this study guide. There's material coming that I want you to have. Hold your hand up. You're all the way in the back of the balcony. Hold your hand up. And while we're doing that, we're delighted to have those of you who are watching right now go to our website. Let me put it on the screen for you. WWWPM Church. You see it there? It's kind of small at the bottom of that screen, but you can see it. WWWPMChurch.tv. You're looking for the series Primetime. The series is coming to an end today. This is the wrap. Title of this teaching, "Twas the Nighttime Before Primetime. When you get to that title, it'll say study guide. You click on there, you'll have the same study guide. We'll give you a minute to, not, not a minute, we'll give you a split second to find that. Keep your hands up all the way to the balcony and an overflow as well. Put your hand up, we'll make sure that uh, you get the study guide. All right, what are the two lines? Write them down. They all fell asleep. That's line number one. They all fell asleep. And then the other line. At midnight, the cry rang out, the bridegroom is coming. Two lines. What's the point? It was the nighttime before prime time and all through the world. Every creature was stirring except for the church. Donned in their kerchiefs and wrapped in their gowns, the church was asleep as the curtain came down. I'm a bit embarrassed to ask this, but I'm going to do it anyway. Am I the only one hearing the tapping, the incessant tapping behind the headlines we've been experiencing of late? Maybe, it, maybe it's just that I'm hearing things. Huh? Like, the, like the Heath brothers put it, I'm hearing a bunch of disconnected taps, like a kind of bizarre Morse code. Is that it? What I want to do here is run three headline categories by you. I'd like to kind of get your sense of this. Am I the only one? Are you anybody else hearing any tapping here? All right. Headline category. See what you think. What's the tune we're supposed to be hearing from these headlines? Headline category number one. Jot it down. The economy. Economy. Headline category one. Economy. I have never in all of my short life experienced such a drumbeat of headlines pounding out. The news that our economy is tanking faster than they can rewrite the headlines for the next day. I've never seen anything like it in my life. 
Here's a piece from a financial blog out on the West Coast. He could have written this tomorrow. It's in your study guide. Take a look at it. You'll have to fill it in. Today, the news is unrelentingly bad. Layoffs are soaring. Home building is plunging. And stocks are falling off a cliff. The whole house of cards seems to be collapsing. Imagine how it must feel to be a treasury official or central banker today, unlike the rest of us who can only watch with horrified fascination as the global economy implodes. You're actually expected to do something about it. But what? Everything you try, no matter how huge and impressive it sounds at first, fails miserably within days, if not hours. Now you're huddled with your advisors around a conference table yelling at your foreign counterparts on the speakerphone. You need a new plan to keep the world from ending tomorrow. His words. From ending tomorrow. End quote. You've got the website. You can check that out for yourself. Apparently, there are more than a few who are hearing a tune behind the drumming headlines of late. So that's headline category number one, economy. Headline category number two, jot it down. We'll call it humanity. Humanity. Back in August, Newsweek writer Jesse Elliott wrote a piece about a new paranoia in this age, get this, young men who believe they are the subjects of their own reality TV show. Huh? <laughs> Isn't that something? You see it there in your study guide, jot it down. Joel Gold, the director of psychiatrics at New York's Bellevue Hospital Center, describes it as, quote, the pathological product of our insatiable appetite for self-exposure. Oh, boy. Have we all become the stars in our own reality TV shows? Is that it? I mean, even the tragedy in Mumbai just a week ago. Even that tragedy. What do you have? You have every news cam on earth pointed at them. A handful of young men who now command center stage on their own reality TV show. Our insatiable appetite for self-exposure. What's happening to us as a race? You heard this a few weeks ago. Young adult Miami. With his webcam going live. On the internet. Intentionally overdoses himself in front of the people who are watching him. Some are egging him on. Others are begging him not to. That webcam stays on for 12 hours while he lies on his bed. Somebody reports it finally to the police. They walk into the room, walk straight to the webcam, flip it off. The young man is dead. The insatiable appetite for self-exposure. I mean, when a... You know, you, you read Edward Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And I tell you what, it isn't hard to imagine one day that like the ancient Romans, we'll be doing death live on television or the Internet. People watch. Pay to view. What's happening to us? I mean, just, please, Black Friday. That horde of shoppers... It crashes down the door in the Long Island Walmart and tramples a security guard to death, racing to get my favorite present for me. 
All the while, they're running over him. They're walking by him. He's dying and nobody stops. Please. What is happening to us as a race? Can you hear the tune behind the incessant tapping of the headlines? What have we become? Oh, here, your, your, your list of categories is much longer, but let, one more. Headline category number three, write it down, prophecy. Okay, so you have economy, humanity, prophecy. The European Parliament right now is debating a provision for all workers in the European Union. It's a provision called Working Time Directive. You can go on to Google, just type in those three words, Working Time Directive. You'll have all the European reports of this. Principally, it is an effort to safeguard European workers by regulating the amount of overtime work that would be allowed, providing a minimum weekly rest. All right, so you've got to have this much time off. Not surprisingly... Europe's Catholic bishops have been pushing the members of the European Parliament to amend the directive so that the minimum weekly rest period, quote, shall in principle include Sunday, end quote. I have this in the study guide for you. Piotr Marzurkiewicz, Secretary General of the Brussels-based Bishops' Conferences of the European Communities, now you have to fill this in, said the protection of Sunday is a cornerstone of the European social model and is an issue of central importance for workers and their families. It would make sense, he goes on, to complete the current draft by adding a provision on Sunday as a weekly day of rest. And in a week and a half, it'll come to a vote. All for the good of the workers, understandably so. But Rome's unprecedented public efforts to return secular Europe into her ecclesiastical fold is a harbinger of an agenda that is clearly global. Listen, folks, this is not rocket science, please. It isn't rocket science to observe that an increasingly severe economic collapse can provide the cover for overt legislative action heretofore considered unthinkable or at best unlikely in Europe or in the United States of America. Does anybody else hear the tune behind the incessant tappings of the headlines these days, and what is the tune playing? It was the night time before prime time, and all through the world, every creature was stirring except for the church, donned in their kerchiefs and wrapped in their gowns. The church was asleep as the curtain came down. So what about you? What, what about me? Are we sleeping? It isn't even a cursory reading of the parable that we just did. Is clear. Everybody in the parable sleeps. Isn't that right? Didn't everybody sleep? All ten slept. So it can't be a sin to sleep. The critical difference between the five wise and the five foolish, once they've awakened, turns out to have been simply a relational one. Five of them didn't know the bridegroom. They are pounding on the door and he says, I'm so sorry. I don't know you. It'd be sad, wouldn't it, to know the tune behind the headlines, but not know the one behind the tune. So do you know him? Do you? I want to tell you something. I've been especially burdened these last three months. Just watching, observing the world. I'm very concerned and fearful that the impending crisis 
will catch the church asleep. Without a vibrant, personal relationship with the one who is soon to return. I'm telling you, I I have noticed my brain becoming more and more preoccupied with this petition that God will somehow awaken the church to our deep need for Jesus. I carry around in my Bible, all of them, a six-word prayer that was composed a century ago. It goes like this. We seem to sit as though we were paralyzed, and then here come the six words. God of heaven, wake us up. I mean, what's the point? Jot it down. What is the point of knowing the tune behind the headlines if you don't know the one behind the tune? And how is it with you, young prime timers? You're the reason we got into this series in the first place. I'm going to tell you something now that I wouldn't have told you at the beginning. But since it's over, it's over. You know what the, you, you know what the reason... You know the reason why you're the primetime generation? It's not because there is something intrinsically special or unique about you. It is rather a simple and incontrovertible truth. And that is, when it is nighttime, then it is primetime. Write that down. When it is nighttime, it's the nighttime that makes the primetime. It's not the people that make the prime time. It's the nighttime that makes the prime time. When it is nighttime, then it is prime time. And in this midnight hour of history, I tell you, that's what makes you the prime time generation. And so, my young friends, I need to say this with all the earnestness that I can muster as a pastor of this campus. I need to alert you. That we are in nighttime now. It's interesting that word night, jot it down, how it appears, juxtapositioned in Scripture. Look at this, the, the Apostle Paul, Romans 13, 11 through 14, one line out of that passage. The night is nearly over and the day is almost here. Look at this one, the words of our Lord Himself, John 9, verse 4. Night is coming when no one can work. Now, Jesus is speaking of, of His impending crucifixion. But the very words indicate an affirmation that night can apparently get so deeply dark that it becomes impossible finally to do any work at all. Now listen, we are not there yet. Trust me, you will know when we are. You'll know. Isaiah 21 verse 11, watchman, you who can hear the tune tapping out behind the headlines, watchman, what is left of the night? What is left? How much of night is left? Every now and then I'll have a a university student walk into my office here at the church. And and it'll go something like this. Hey, pastor, I'm telling you what. I I am under conviction that Jesus is coming soon. And I'm wondering, what do you think about this idea? I'm thinking of dropping out of school and going straight to work for God right now. What do you think? That's a fair question. Let's say you were the one that brought it up 20 years ago. What would you be today? 
Well, you would be 20 years into God's mission. Hallelujah. But you would also be without the benefits of a liberal art education. And you would be intellectually handicapped. You say, oh, come on, Dwight. That's a little, that, that's a little bit below the belt. The classic on Christ's parables, Christ's object lessons. I put it in your study guide so you can see it for yourself. You'll have to fill it in. Notice this. If placed under the control of his spirit, the more thoroughly the intellect, write it down, the intellect, the more thoroughly the intellect is cultivated, the more effectively it can be used in the service of God. Now, look, the uneducated man who is consecrated to God and who longs to bless others can be and is used by the Lord in His service. Don't you go pining out of this church today and say, Oh, boy, I never really got an education. God is not going to be able to use me. Wrong, wrong, wrong. You will be used. Trust me. However, however, notice the caveat. But... Those who with the same spirit of consecration have had the benefit of a thorough education can do a much more extensive work for Christ. They stand on, write it down, vantage, vantage ground. Do you know what that means? It's an advantage to be intellectually sharp. It's an advantage. You stand on vantage ground. The Lord, listen to this, the Lord desires us to obtain all the education possible with the object in view of imparting our knowledge to others. That's always the object, guys. It's not so that I can become bright and everybody says, oh, aren't you smart? Nope. The point of the education is to enable you to be more effective in God's mission. Our minds, keep reading, our minds should be so trained that if necessary, we can present the truths of His Word before the highest earthly authorities in such a way as to glorify His name. Write it down. We should not let slip even one opportunity. Don't let it go. Don't you let it go. One opportunity of qualifying ourselves intellectually to work for God and Quote, of course, you must remain in school. Just because it's nighttime doesn't mean it isn't the right time to get your prime time mind and life equipped for maximum value and intellectual service for Christ. But here's the good news. You can do prime time. Hallelujah. You can do prime time right here. Twelve miles up the road. There's an inner city called Benton Harbor. We need a hundred more young adults who will help us with our street ministry in that city. Twelve miles up the road. Student missions. Oh, student missions is ready to send you anywhere on earth that you're willing to go for Christ. While you're deepening your intellect and broadening your education as well. Just talk to Chaplain Japheth or Chaplain Karen. Hey, listen. Start your own ministry right here on the campus or in the community. Are you into puppets? Start a puppet ministry. Are you into tutoring? We've got high schools all over this place and elementary schools that desperately need young adult tutors. Listen, be a part of public evangelism. We just had 30 Andrews University students help us with the Discoveries 08 series. And here's some great news for you. In the new year, we are going to partner with the religion department and invite students of all disciplines to conduct public 
teaching series all around this county. Sign up. We are hoping to begin a peer-to-peer mission for Notre Dame University students. We need bright minds. We already have those going at Lake Michigan College. You can help there. The point is, you can do prime time right here, so why wait? Do it now. And by the way, the greatest prescription for keeping awake is to stay working. Just work. Work. This is the prime time. If you'll stay awake, you'll stay awake if you stay at work. I tell you what, prime timers, the church deeply needs you. We need you. There's some others who are sleeping. I'm not sure when they'll wake. We need you. You know, Elizabeth Newton was right. In that doctoral research, she said, hey, you know, the problem with the tappers is you've got to remember that the listeners can't hear the tune that the tapper is hearing in his mind, hearing in her heart. Because, you see, the only people who can hear the tune are those who know the tune. You already know the tune. You already know the tune. Which is why God needs you, since you can recognize the tune, to share with those who don't know the tune, the nature of the tune, so that they too can be a part of this nighttime moment that will one hour, one hour, usher in an eternal day. Which is why, I must tell you, if you know the one behind the tune, and you know the tune behind the tapping, we are under moral obligation. We are under a joyful invitation to tell the world that Jesus is coming soon. So today, even as we began, I need to end in a way we didn't in First Church. I need to make a simple invitation that won't take long to ponder. If you as a young prime timer would be willing to make yourself available to the mission of Christ in this nighttime of prime time, to take the glad tidings of Jesus soon coming. If you'd be willing through whatever your discipline is to make yourself available to Christ for that nighttime mission. You're sitting behind me. You're sitting in front of me. I wish you would stand to your feet right now. And by that standing, you just say, Hey, Jesus, please. Please. Please, Jesus. Help me. Help me. I hear the tapping. I know the tune. Please help me. Holy Christ is really not a big deal for us to stand. You've been standing for us for so long. But by standing today, what we are humbly saying is we don't want to sleep. This is the greatest hour 
in the history of civilization. We can't sleep through this curtain call, please. And so we stand. Give us something to do for you, Jesus. doesn't matter what we've been trained to do. Give us something to do for you. To tell the world the earnestly good news. The child of Bethlehem is soon to return. Use us any way you wish, but know our hearts, O Emmanuel. Come. Come, Emmanuel, we pray.